Hi, everyone. I'm Brett Haber, and it's my pleasure to welcome you back to the Tennis Worthy podcast from the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Today, we'll be hearing from wheelchair tennis champion and Hall of Famer David Hall. Even though something devastating had happened to me physically, like losing both legs, the bigger aspect of that was trying to transition back into the real world. Later on in the conversation, he leaned in and he said, you know, I'm going to give you this piece of advice. And he said, the only person that can really help you is you. Desire was the main driver for me. And I think that separated me from the other top players. And I think it was, if I won, say, one Australian Open or one US Open, then that wasn't enough. Sometimes you think it's a perfect storm, and you're right, it was never going to happen again, like to have a home games. So, yeah, if there was one victory uh, that was the most important in my career, it was, it was winning gold in Sydney. An all-time great in the sport, David won more than 80 titles in his career, including nine Australian Opens and eight U.S. Opens. In this week's conversation, tennis-worthy host Chris Bowers and David discuss David's process of adapting physically and mentally as an athlete following a car accident at age 16 that cost him his legs. Already a tennis player, David went on to win six Paralympic medals and numerous major wheelchair titles. You will be inspired by David's story to be sure and his relentless desire to pick himself back up and pursue his dream. You'll also learn about his love of music, especially of the heavy metal variety, plus his advice on dealing with adversity and his unique donation to the Hall of Fame's collection. Time now for host Chris Bowers and David Hall. Enjoy. David Hall, what do you think it is that makes you a Hall of Famer? Well, I think for me it was uh, desire. I think that was the main driver. I think, you know, a lot of times players have similar serves, forehands, backhands. Their strength is quite similar. I think uh, the the difference can be the mental, emotional part of it. And so I think for me, just we can boil it down to matches or you can boil it down to, to winning uh, more and more. The, you just want it so badly that it just ends up being a Hall of Fame career. And so it's, uh, I think for me, if I look back on it, it was desire was the main driver for me. And I think that in a lot of ways uh, separated me from the other top players. And I think it was just something that if I won say one Australian Open or one US Open, then that wasn't enough. Like I wanted more, I wanted two US Opens, I wanted three Australian Opens, I wanted six British Opens. It it just kind of, I guess you could say it's like a a snowball just rolling down the mountain. It just gains momentum. And then before you know it, uh, 10 years later, you've got you know, seven US Opens. And, and I think that was just that, you know, I was so committed over such a long period of time that, yeah, I think, I think desire was the main thing for me. There's obviously a massive turning point in your childhood at 16 when you were hit by the car. Before 16, did you have that drive? Did you always have that as a child? Or do you think it came 
after as a result of not wanting to be got down by what happened to you? I think I did have the drive. I don't think it was at that level after I started wheelchair tennis. I think as a kid, like I ran track and field, I played soccer, uh, played tennis. I was sporty and I was pretty talented as a kid, but I just, I was never going to be good enough to play any of those sports professionally. But I think the fact that I, I can't remember giving up like in a race as a kid, you know, I can't remember giving up uh, in a match like as a junior. And so I think after the accident, obviously things change. You know, you have to try to transition back into society. And I think that is the biggest struggle of all. Even though something devastating had happened to me physically, like losing both legs, but the bigger aspect of that was trying to transition back into the real world. And I think that comes from, I don't know, an emotional part of it. Uh, Obviously, there were times where you think I'm not going to be able to do this. And I remember that there was a guy when I was still in the hospital and it wasn't long after the second amputation. uh, There was a nurse in there that was just fantastic. And she came into my hospital room and she said, David, I want you to talk to this guy that I know, Alan. And Alan had lost his legs. He'd been run over by a train and miraculously survived. And Alan wheels his chair into the room. And it was funny because straight away, I thought he was going to give me some some, uh, words of wisdom. But he hands me a cassette tape of ACDC's Back in Black. And he says, mate, you are going to hit anger at some point. You're going to feel that emotion. And at the time, I was a, a fan of Duran Duran. So, so I, was, I felt like I had no use for this ACDC. But Alan was totally right. Because at some point, I did hit anger. Like when I got back into the real world. And like listening to that kind of music, it was almost like a soothing thing, like in a weird way. But then uh, later on in the conversation, he leaned in and he said, you know, I'm going to give you this piece of advice. And he said, the only person that can really help you is you. And at the time, I just, like, I didn't really know what he meant by that. Because I was thinking, yes, the doctors could help, the nurses, the physios, my family. But ultimately, if I was going to make this transition uh, back into society, that I had to be the one to do it. Like I had to be the one to get to whatever was next. And it just happened to be that tennis was next. I didn't know it at the time, but I think from that perspective, it was, it was a great piece of advice. Did you connect with the anger when you listened to the ACDC music? Yeah, I did. And I did. And I think in some respects, I just kind of used it to fuel me. And I think that was part of the tennis element when it did come into to my life. And it didn't really come in until like two years after I'd, I'd gotten out of hospital. And so I had had two years of like rolling the roller coaster of, you know, trying to get back to work, even though I was so young. I was only 17 when I went back to live with mum and dad, like after my accident. But I'd moved to the city. Like I'd moved from a beach town down to Sydney before my accident. I left left school at 16. So I was living that life. And then after the accident, I had to move back in with mum and dad up the coast and then try to get my old job back just 
yeah, trying to transition. So for me, it was a bit of a roller coaster for, for two years. And, and I did, yeah, I did go through periods of anger, you know, why did this happen to me? And, but I just tried to think of, of Alan's words and just try to focus on learning to walk with the prosthetics, you know, learning to, to use the wheelchair and in different, you know, situations, trying to reconnect with friends uh, that had that had moved in and out of my life, you know, school friends. And so, yeah, it was a big, big transition. But I think in some ways the anger did did help. Was there a particular track that's relevant to this anger? Probably Highway to Hell, because I think in some respects you feel like uh, when, you know, you, you are trying to transition back into the real world, you, you feel like you are on a bit of a highway to hell because you just don't know you know, what's, what's coming, uh, especially when, when you're feeling, you know, upset or, or angry about the, the situation. But I don't know. It's just funny because music, I think, had started to play a bigger part in my life. And I think all through tennis, it just ended up being like a, like a regular thing. I'd listen to it before matches. I'd listen to it after matches. And I'd listen to it when, when we trained and, and all that kind of thing all that kind of thing. So I think, yeah, tennis and music kind of went hand in hand, hand in hand for so long. You played a number of sports before the accident, including tennis. Did you find yourself going through all the sports you'd played and thought, right, what can I do without my own legs? Well, I did try basketball. I met someone, uh, Errol Hyde, who was playing tennis and basketball, and he did... Uh, take me to basketball one night and the funny thing was that uh, someone passed me the ball and I wasn't watching and it just kind of ricocheted off my head <laughs> and I thought maybe this sport isn't for me uh, but I didn't really I didn't play basketball as a kid so I didn't really have that connection and I really I mean I had no interest in in track and field you know I could have tried that I could have tried racing like I didn't I wasn't a swimmer uh, as a kid and so, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't really an option for me. It just seemed to be like tennis was like a natural thing to get into. And I just, you know, I love the sport as a kid. I was a big Landall fan. My friend Brownie, uh, we'd get out there at Budgie Boy tennis courts and he'd pretend to be Mats Volander and I'd pretend to be Lendl and, and we'd play all the slam finals and... Like one day we'd play Wimbledon and the next day we'd pretend we were at Roland Garros and we we just had such a great time. And then it wasn't until probably when I was 14 that, that, that we both kind of figured that we should get some lessons, some tennis lessons. And, and so we found uh, Alan McDonald, who was a local uh, tennis coach at Tukli and, and Macca had played on the tour uh, through the 60s and he was a larrikin guy and he knew... Nuke and, and Rochi and all those guys. And so we started getting lessons from Macker. And then, uh, yeah, I played locally, played some junior tournaments. As I said, I was never going to be good enough to be a pro. But And then the accident happened. And then it just kind of, uh, everything got turned upside down. And, and it just happened to be that years later, when I was at home with, with mum, that there was the, the local newspaper uh, on the table and there was an article about a guy in a wheelchair playing tennis and his name was Terry Mason and so I had to find out what this wheelchair tennis was all about 
and we talked on the phone and then, uh, yeah, I hit with Terry and that started everything. That, that was like the beginning of, of like a 15, 16 year odyssey. How old were you then? I was 18, 18. Two years after the accident. Two years, yeah. And it was just, I mean, in the beginning I was awful. You know, I couldn't, the chair was in all different directions. I was spraying balls everywhere. Like Terry was a, a great guy and he'd hit the ball back to me. And, and then I started meeting other guys and girls in chairs. And, and that was good because in, in some ways I felt like I, I'd found my tribe, you know, and it was kind of a, a good social thing for me. Not just was it athletic, but it was, it was good to connect, you know, with other people uh, in wheelchairs. And, and then they said, oh, man, there's a tour. You could travel and play tournaments. And I thought, man, this is great. And then someone said, oh, there's some prize money. And I thought, wow, you can actually win money playing tennis. It was just mind-blowing to me. So that was just an opportunity that I knew I couldn't pass up. You know, sometimes in life, opportunities come and go and you don't even know that they've arrived. And then all of a sudden they've gone. Well, for me, wheelchair tennis was like, man, this bus has arrived. I've got to get on it because I don't know where it's going, but I think it's going somewhere good. You talked about the nurse and Alan and a bit of ACDC helping you through the immediate aftermath. Do you feel that the discovery of wheelchair tennis was as important for you in overcoming the trauma of the accident as those people in their own different ways helped you with? Yes, for sure. I, I think it really was. I think it did give me something that I could pour that negative energy into, but it also gave me something to chase. And I think it was, it ended up being such a strong passion of mine that when I started winning, it just was never enough. And it was, it was just pouring more fuel on the fire that, that just kept going season after season. And and over time, you think, well, you know, the accident is further back uh, in the past and, and it's off in the distance and you don't even... And in, in some ways, you are another person. You know, you've moved into another phase of life. And, and I was a clerk at, at one stage and I was dabbling in wheelchair tennis and then I knew that I had to be all in. So I quit. I quit my job. And that, that was a government job. And mum... Mum was, I think, a bit mortified. She was like, are you going to quit this government job? Like, this could be, you could have this job for decades. But I knew that if I wanted to reach a certain level in tennis, that I had to be all in. Like, I had to be a thousand percent. There was no other way to do it. I knew I wanted to be number one. And the only, like, the only way to do that was to, I had to devote everything to it. And I couldn't do that if I was if I was working nine to five. When you were weighing up whether to give up the job, were there doubts? Yeah, there was. And it's funny because it was, well, 1993 and Dave Johnson and I had decided to, to tour America for six months and just play tournament after tournament after tournament. And the first tournament was in uh, Reno and I played Dave Kiley, who was probably at the time the world's best basketballer 
but he was very good at tennis as well. Very dangerous player, very quick, quick in the chair. And I remember that first match in Reno, I literally, the third set, I just froze up and I just really played not to lose. And Dave won. And I remember after the match, I just was sitting uh, at the side of the courts and I was thinking, wow, like I couldn't really believe it. You know, because I, I, I just had months earlier quit the job. And, and I thought, well, now it's just going to, like everything's going to open up. You know, I'm going to become a better player. I can devote all this time to it. But it was almost for like 20 minutes of that third set, I'd, I'd had this weird thing in the back of my mind, like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? You know, I've, I've, I've thrown it all in for, for a dream that, that may not happen. But I think in a way it was good because it made me realize that, you know, I have to, I have to take this opportunity. I have to take this chance and I, and I can't look at it as this huge weight that's on me. I just have to shed that by mentally I have to become better. Like I have to prepare better. You know, I have to not freeze up in matches. And I think that was a thing that I learned over time, but yeah, I just remember at that, that that day at that those courts in Reno for I don't know twenty minutes. I was thinking, "Wow, I, I what have I done here?" But yeah, I was able to turn it around. And what was the strength? What did you find in you, or what were the coping strategies that allowed you to banish those doubts and to say, "No, I do belong on this circuit." Well, I think I just. I made a decision in my mind that I am just going to not freeze when the moment arrives, like in these matches. And I, and I, and I think some things, I think it helped me in different aspects of my career. When I could make up my mind, I would just lock it away. Some people would say that's not a decision. Yeah, well, I, I could just, I don't know, I just kind of had this ability to just say, I'm not going to freeze in this match. And that's not to say I never did, because there were times years later when I did play not to lose rather than play to win. And so sometimes that that beast would come for a visit, like, and I didn't want it to. I can remember a few times over the course of 15 years where it was, you know, banging on the door trying to get in. But I just, I just decided that, no, I'm just not, not going to play this way. But also... Over time, I did get together with sports psychologists and they were fantastic and they gave me different strategies to use and, you know, what, where to put the mind, you know, the 15 seconds that you have between points, you know, move that out to 30 seconds and look at the strings and all those mental cues that you use to get to the next point. But it was something that was decided way back in 93 in Reno and I think that, that definitely helped me. What was the biggest thing you learned about yourself at that time? That I was capable of, of chasing this dream and that I, I could take a risk and, and, it, and it was a risk. And, and, and you know, I wasn't really that far removed from, from my accident and from you know, essentially being somewhere, so, someone else. And so I think it was that, yeah, I can, I can have this dream and I can chase it and that yes there are going to be obstacles yes there are going to be bumps but you know I can get over that and I, and I can keep going and you know sometimes I I didn't know how I mean I knew I had weaknesses in my game my game was by 
When I first started traveling overseas in 1990, I'd say all the way up to 95, there were holes in my game. And even though at the time, like, well, at the end of 93, I'd reached number nine in the world. And then at the end of 94, I was number two in the world, but I didn't, I didn't feel it. I didn't think I was number two. I, I thought, man, there are, there are 10 players in the rankings better than me. But like, it wasn't until 95 when I got together with Rich and my coach, out of Boulder at Colorado, that he was the one that, that really fixed the holes. He filled in the holes. And I think that was, 95 was really the year that I thought, yes, I can win a lot of majors and I can really do something with, with this career. But I'm assuming that the tennis instruction you had between 14 and 16 was actually crucial to you being a wheelchair tennis player because while you may not have any legs, you have to have half-decent technique. Otherwise, there's no way you can hit balls from a wheelchair. Yeah, that's right. And Maka, I mean, Maka was really good on the technique element of it and, and that definitely helped when I transitioned into the chair because I did have the grips and the swings and and so that was a, that was definitely an advantage. But like in saying that, you've still got to transition that into the chair. And it's kind of funny because, you know, when I was playing, uh, running around, you know, I just loved hitting topspin backhands, like Lendl, because I wanted to be like Ivan. But then in the chair, uh, I, just, I just found it easier to hit slice. And so I'd say the vast majority of the time I was hitting slice backhands. And so it's funny how, you know, I played a certain way as a kid and then I'm in the chair and I'm kind of mixing, mixing things up and, and changing things up. And look, my technique in the chair was far from perfect. Like, and people will tell you this, they'll laugh at some, some of the crazy, you know, technique, like my back end, I had, had the, the wrist was a little bit weak. And, and so, you know, we, we kind of talked about with Rich, should we correct it? And then we were able to turn it into a weapon. And so we didn't really mess with it too much. And, and so I, I didn't have the best technique, but yeah, I was, I was able to, to make it work well enough that, uh, yeah, I was able to, to do my fair share of winning. Tennis Worthy is not just a podcast. It's also a video series dedicated to the triumphs and challenges Hall of Famers and legends have overcome. From Althea Gibson breaking the color barrier to Billie Jean King's resiliency and Martina Navratilova's sacrifice of defecting from her homeland for a better future. Tennis Worthy tells the best stories of the game from the best players in the game through the defining values of tennis. To watch, visit tennisfame.com slash tennisworthy. Each year, the International Tennis Hall of Fame bestows the ultimate honor in tennis to those who have set themselves apart, both on and off the court. The 260 individuals in the Hall of Fame hail from 27 countries and are enshrined in the museum at the Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. In addition to the legacies of the Hall of Famers on display, from Dick Sears to Andre Agassi to Chrissy Everett and more, the museum boasts a stunning collection of tennis history that is open daily. Plan your trip to the International Tennis Hall of Fame at tennisfame.com slash visit. Let's send you back now to Chris Bowers for more of his conversation with Hall of Famer David Hall. You said a few minutes ago that when you were getting tennis lessons at 14 from Alan McDonald, you said, oh, yeah, well, I'm never going to do anything professionally. And a few years later, there you were, a professional tennis player on the circuit. Did that help you reframe what the accident had done to you as a person? 
Yeah, it did. It really did. Because I was a shy kid. Like I was, I was the kid when the relatives would come over, I'd go out into the backyard and, and try to, you know, kick goals. Or I'd try to, you know, bowl the, the cricket ball down to an imaginary batsman <laughs> in, in the backyard. You know, I was just the shy kid that didn't really want any social interaction. Like I, I could spend hours by myself. Mum would send me to my room uh, if I was fighting with my sister, Kristen, and, and Kristen would stomp her feet and she'd put her hands on her hips and she'd be yelling and screaming trying to get out of the room. I would happily go to my room. I could spend hours in there alone because I was just, you know, a bit of a, a loner. I was a shy, yeah, I was essentially a shy loner. Not, not to say I didn't have friends, but the accident really toughened me up, you know, and I, and I kind of realised that sometimes society can be unforgiving. And so for me to make this transition, you know, I need to, I need to shed not all of the shy kid, but you know, I need to shed quite a lot of it to, to make this transition. Because when you go back into society, you know, you essentially you're, you're different. You know, I'm pushing around in the wheelchair with, uh, you know, I've got no legs. And so people look, you know, people stare, you know, kids point, you know, people say things. And so you've got to, you've got to have this, this kind of grit to you. And that might, that might not be developed. It wasn't developed for me. And so I had to harden up. And so I think that really helped my tennis later on. You know, it become tough. And so when you feel like you've got this desire and you combine that with toughness, I think you can win a lot of matches. So if the accident brought you out of yourself... Who is the real David Hall, the shy boy before the accident or the tough competitor, <laughs> brash, very happy to talk, tattooed? <laughs> well, he's probably a combo, I think. I think he's, there is still some shy kid in there somewhere, but I think, oh gosh, decades later, he's probably more the hardened, tattooed, you know, fun-loving, talk-to-anybody guy but yeah i'd say that there is still some shy kid in there somewhere but uh, and i think he'll always be there but it just goes to show that you know something devastating can happen to someone that you know maybe is you know a little unique or different or whatever and and maybe doesn't show signs of of toughness but you know that that person or that kid can can develop it and for me, it wasn't like it wasn't an option because I knew I pretty much knew like the first few days in hospital that my life would never be the same again and that I'd have to deal with that. And so I think that was the, the part. Well, gee, you know, this is a bit of a wake up call. And it, you know, that that toughness developed over time. But it really developed when I had to go back into society and and all these crazy things were happening to me. Did you ever feel sorry for yourself, maybe in the immediate aftermath of the accident? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I did. But I, I think I just tried to tried to have Alan's words just ringing in my ear that, that I'm responsible for this. You know, I, I have to be the one to, to help myself. And so I, I felt that if, if I did have periods of why me, then I just, just left that. I just can't. That's not who I am now. 
you know, I have to leave that behind. And whether that was, you know, listening to ACDC or Nine Inch Nails or whatever it was, I just had to to move through that. And I think what actually helped me was fitness. Because after my second amputation, they literally wheeled the hospital bed down a couple of levels uh, at the hospital to the rehab room. And they gave me this, like the smallest weights you've ever seen. And that was a path back to society for me as well, because I had to, I had to get stronger to push the chair, to use the prosthetics between the monkey bars. And so the fitness element was all, that was really good because anything negative, any energy that I had, I could just pour into lifting weights as well. So that was, that was a, a big part of it as well, I think. So turning most of your efforts towards tennis, did you have a little bit of time left over to be kind to the shy boy within who is still there? Because you don't want to turn everything into determination, however admirable that is, do you? No, that's true. That's true. And I think, you know, I mean, I was the shy kid, but, you know, the sensitive kid as well. And I think I kind of kept that, you know, I kept that, kept that sensitivity, which I think was, was good. Um, but yeah, I think there were, you know, there were obviously times where you you do want to give yourself a break. Uh, but, and yeah, it wasn't just all, you know, dreams and determination. You know, I think you, you def- definitely have to reevaluate along the way, especially if things, you know, aren't going so well uh, like they were for me <laughs> in Reno in 93. But I wouldn't change it. I mean, that's, that's the crazy thing. You know, I wouldn't, cha- I wouldn't change that kid. You know, the kid had to grow up a certain way and the kid had to go through, you know, what he had to go through to, to get to the next phase and... Who knows, if I wasn't that kid, I might not have turned out the way I did after the accident. You know, you you just will never know. So you won nine Australian Opens, seven British Opens, eight US Paralympics. Were there any points where you suddenly stopped and thought, wow? (laughs) I'd say the first US Open, like in 95, because that was... That was the tournament. It was the biggest tournament. It was the birthplace of wheelchair tennis, Southern California, the racket club of Irvine. That center court was like a pit, you know, with the stands kind of rising above it. It just had that real Coliseum feel. It was it was our Wimbledon, I guess. And it was the tournament everyone wanted to win. No foreign player had won the men's singles, only Americans and and here I come in 95 and I'm playing Stevie Welsh. He's the defending champion and uh, he's from Texas and everyone's cheering for Stevie and you know, we're down in the pit and, and we get into a third set breaker. And if I win the match, I go to number one. And so all, all of a sudden my dream, my dreams collided at the same time, winning the biggest tournament, the US Open and becoming world number one and I just remember I just remember winning that last point and I, I was just in shock you know because everything had, it was almost like everything that had happened in the past you know the shy kid the accident uh, Terry Mason the first time I played wheelchair tennis the first time I went to Japan and saw Randy Snow and Laurent Giamatini play they, they were number one and number two in the world and those guys were hitting shots I couldn't believe they were pushing the chair 
so fast that I couldn't believe it. That was where I really made the decision that I wanted to be number one in the world, was seeing those two guys play. And then it took me five years to get to that, that US Open final and then to be in complete shock. But as I said, it wasn't enough. Like I wanted, I wanted more. Like I wanted so much more. Just to, to become number one and to win a major was incredible. But it's like when you go into a back street in Paris and you find a cafe that only the locals know about and they've got this chocolate souffle on the menu and everyone raves about it. And so it gets delivered to your table. You put the spoon in, you crack the top and this chocolate just oozes out and you have a bite and you're like, oh my God, this is incredible, man. I can't get enough of this. I want more. I want, I want seven souffles. And that was, that was what the majors were like for me. Like I wanted, I just kept wanting chocolate souffle after chocolate souffle. And it just was, it just became like that, that kind of drug that I just couldn't get enough. And so that, that just consumed me. Well, for the next, yeah, from 95 through to 2005, that was all, all consuming. Did you ever have a chocolate souffle? <laughs> I don't, I'm sure I have somewhere along the way, but uh, maybe next time I go to Paris, I should find, you know, a back street and, and just chat to some of the locals and find out where the best uh, chocolate souffle is. If you always want more, does that mean you're never satisfied? Well, yes, I, I would say definitely. I think <laughs> maybe, well, definitely in that tennis aspect of it, I was, I was not satisfied. And I think it was even to the point that I would do what maybe some consider crazy things like just, you know, the fitness element, I just tried to take it to, to other levels and I would... I would say no to birthday parties. I would you know, not have a like a beer for you know six months, ten months, or whatever. I mean, I would I would just everything just kind of boiled down to I just want more. I just want more. And even I'm at home and I'm just doing the dishes. I'm thinking about this upcoming U.S. Open. Even if I'm out washing the car, I'm, I'm thinking about this upcoming British Open. You know, it's always, it was always there, just percolating. Even, even if I wasn't directly thinking about it, it was just always somewhere in my, my sense of, of being. And so I think that was why that I was able to win so much. And I think that was something that is tied into that, that desire uh, and that toughness. And I think it, it just kind of all wrapped into to one uh, big thing of, of having a, a Hall of Fame career. Okay, but then if we're talking about satisfied in the economic sense of wants are never satisfied, did you at least get enjoyment? Did you get the, the emotional satisfaction of winning tournaments? Or did you feel that the moment you won a tournament, you just had to win the next one? <laughs> well, I did. It's funny because I did give myself... I, I mean, yes, I enjoyed it. There's no doubt about it. And I loved winning... And I think there was always, even if I'd won the eighth US Open, there was always just that little bit of shock. Like, I still can't believe that I'm, that I'm winning this much. And that night we would go and, and celebrate and maybe I would sneak in a beer and I would like fire up a cigar. But then we'd 
be on to the next event. You know, you catch a plane and you, know, you go somewhere else and or you, know, you might come home for a, a week or two and then there's you know, the, the circus starts up somewhere else. And But no, I was good. I was good at celebrating and, and I think that's, yeah, that's, that's an important part of it. I think you're right. I think you just can't be, you know, that, that way 24-7 all the time. You have to have, yeah, periods of, of celebration and, and fun and appreciation. I think that is a big part of it as well. I think you I think sometimes players do have, have trouble appreciating their journey when it's actually happening. And, and I think I think I was good at, at doing that, hopefully. The British Open, the US Open, the Australian Open, they're every year. The Paralympics are every four years. And the Paralympics in Sydney is once a lifetime. How did you deal with the pressure of an event that was a one-off opportunity back in 2000? I think I just used everything that I've learned up until that point. I'd been on the tour for 10 years. I'd won a lot of matches. I'd lost various matches to different players. I think I was, I mean, it's funny. I, I look back on it and I don't even think, I didn't play my best tennis for those two weeks. Uh, I think I struggled through some matches, but I just think at the, at the right time, in various matches, I was able just to play well enough. And I think that that toughness did come through. And I think I just, I just tried to boil everything down to, you know, we had a game plan. We worked on that plan. I just focused on that. Like I tried to use all those mental cues that I was using. I tried to block out 10,000 people in that stadium. Because in that gold medal match, I'm, I'm playing one of my arch rivals, you know, Stevie Welsh. And, you know, he lost the, the Atlanta final to Ricky Moyer. And so he won a gold. I mean, he wanted it as much as what I did. And it just, I don't know, it just turned into a battle of wills in the end. And I think I just won the right points. And, you know, it's just some, sometimes you think it's a perfect storm. And you're right, it was never going to happen again, like to have a home games. So... Yeah, if there was one victory uh, that was the most important in my career, it was it was winning gold in Sydney. In 2015, you were inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. What do you remember about the induction and what did it mean to you? It meant everything. It really did. It was just, to me, it just felt like a you know, real validation of, of what I'd done in the sport. And it was just, that weekend was just so special and I just remember coach Rich introducing me and being on the stage and I knew it I knew it I as soon as he started the speech I would start to tear up and I thought man how am I going to get through my speech like how am I going to share everything that I want to share without just turning into a blubbering mess and I think there were times where I, I had to stop like I couldn't the words just wouldn't come out, but I got through that, and I just, I just wanted to share it with the people that that had been there with me for those fifteen years. And Mum was there, Dad was there, and my sister Kristen was there, Leslie, my partner, Coach Rich, and and his family. And I had various mates. Brownie was there that we played tennis as a kid all those years ago. I just wanted to share it with them. And I think that was 
that was really important to me as well. And I just, I mean, Newport is just such a beautiful place and, you know, the, the history of the club and, and the museum. I'm an incredible museum. And the fact that they've got a tape, a cassette tape of Slayer, Slayer's Reign in Blood, as part of the museum, I just, I just found that incredible because that was the music that I would listen to before US Open finals. <laughs> I just, I thought, man, there's probably not too many heavy metal cassette tapes in, in, in the Hall of Fame's uh, museum, but yeah, it was just, I uh, just, if I could get inducted every year, I'd, I'd do it for sure because I just think it's fantastic. Did you actually find that your invitation list of who you wanted to accompany you was actually almost one of the most important lists you'd compiled in your whole life? Yeah, I did. I did. Because I think you, you just want to share it with those people that have meant so much to you over the, the course of your career and, and before. I mean, people that, you know, mum and dad and, and, you know, my sister. And I mean, for mum and dad, like at the time, you know, they were in their well, late 70s and so for them it was a big thing to travel you know halfway around the world and you know to to kind of you know they weren't exactly in the you know, the best of health and just to have them there and just for them to to share in it with me and and just to have them tearing up in the crowd as well and I think it was yeah it was a tough list to compile and you know I just I mean, of course, you know, it's a long, long way for, for people to travel from Australia, but um, just to have that, that group of people there was, was very special for me. And could you connect again with the 14-year-old David who had a couple of tennis lessons at a club north of Sydney, never expecting to be a professional, and there you are, recognised with the highest level of people playing tennis? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I think I... Because it is... It's part of it, you know. It is definitely part of that journey, and and you know, you like I look back on it and just you know, as that young kid, you know, running around with the the bob haircut, you know, the the brown hair bobbing up and down, trying to play tennis, and just I don't know. It's it, it's such a long journey to get there, and you never think. I mean, I would never have thought. I mean, in my wildest dreams that I would even become a professional athlete, let alone you know, be inducted into the National Tennis Hall of Fame. It's just a crazy thought to think of. And you do, you know, you have to pinch yourself that it's actually happening and, and that you are touring the museum with with the people that you love. And and we're all just, you know, amazed by this, this historical uh, weekend. And so it's just, yeah, it's something that I'll never, ever forget. And did Ivan Lendl attend your induction? That would have been crazy. That that would have been wild if he did. Uh, I did, I did meet Ivan uh, years. I mean, it would have been '94, very briefly at the Australian Open. I think I was, I was in one of the office buildings, and and Ivan walked past, and you know, I shook his hand, and that was very cool. But the funny thing was, I did meet Mats Volander at, at a World Champions dinner in Paris, and I, I had to go over and talk to him and tell him that my best friend Paul Brown idolised you as a kid and he used to pretend to be you when we'd run around Budgie Ward tennis courts uh, playing as kids and Matt's got oh man he had the biggest belly laugh out of that and I thought man Matt, Matt's is such a cool guy 
And so, yeah, that was, I thought, man, if I never get this chance again, I have to, I have to do it tonight. I have to go <laughs> talk to Matts and, and tell him that Brownie was his uh, tennis hero. What sort of advice do you give people? Because I'm sure you must be asked on several occasions to give inspirational speeches and to give advice to people who've maybe been through similar sort of traumatic experience that you went through at 16. I, I try to frame it this way. I, I say if you have something that you want to chase or that you have a passion for or if you're trying to get you move your way through adversity, you have to take responsibility for it. But in saying that at some point to get to whatever is next, uh, an opportunity will come your way and you have to recognize that. And the other part of it is that if you are chasing something, then you have to know what it is that you're chasing. Like you have to be, you have to frame it in a way that it can't be a fuzzy dream off in the distance. You have to know what it is that, that you're passionate about and that you are chasing. And then I think probably the most important thing about all of that is that you have to be committed to it because there's no point in chasing something if you're not fully in, if you're not fully committed. And I think I've heard players over the years say, oh, I want to do this in the sport or I want to do that in the sport or I want to reach this level or this ranking, but they're not committed to it. You know, it's just mainly mainly words and their actions don't don't back it up. And I think like, once I realised that, that I have to take this to another level of commitment, that was truly when my career took off. And so I think that that all those things are like, a part of something bigger. So, Do you think of yourself as disabled? I mean, obviously you haven't got legs and therefore you're not like the people who have, but you talk as if it's just a question of, you know, that's just a part of who you have been since 16. Do you think about it in those terms? I think it's just a minor, for me, it just feels like a minor inconvenience. Like, like I don't even... I, I'm just me. Like, I just feel like I'm just, you know, David. Like, and there's, I think I try to be this way with everybody. You know, I don't try to play on it. I don't try to do th certain things that would attract attention to my disability. I just, you know, if I can't reach something on the top shelf in the supermarket, it's just, oh, I'll just ask someone to, you know, to reach it. Or I'm very independent. I'm probably the most independent person uh, that you might meet and I don't honestly I don't like asking for help but I'm not too proud or stubborn to not ask for help so and sometimes that's a tricky balance to find you know I think especially when you're first in the wheelchair you, you're not exactly sure how you're feeling about it all and, and mentally or emotionally where you're at but I don't know I think as as time went on I just you know I left a, a lot of that I think in some respects there's just a lot of disability angles that are that are caught up in in how you're feeling and and it becomes it almost becomes you the person your disability almost defines you in some way and I think it's just as I said for me it's like a minor annoyance and and that is it and you're right I just I don't think of myself as as disabled at all and so when a little kid who has no prejudice in the world looks at you and stares at you because you're in a wheelchair how do you feel about that? What's your reaction? Uh, I, I mean, I'm just, yeah, I, I'm, I look, at, like, I love, I mean, kids are just so pure that they just ask the craziest questions and 
the funniest questions. And, and I just, you know, and I, I will, and sometimes, you know, if the mother is, uh, you know, they're not quite sure how I'm going to react to their, their child or, you know, asking me a question or whatever. I just want to put everyone at ease, you know. As I said, I'll talk to anybody. And if a kid in a shopping center wants to ask me a question about something, then I'll happily have a chat. Uh, and I've, I've talked in schools and I've had kids, young kids ask me, how do you brush your teeth? Like, how, how do you sleep? You know, how did you arrive here like in a speedboat? Like, I just get the wackiest questions, but, you know, they, they're just, there's just that purity about it that they're just, they a bit dumbfounded, I think, that, you know, here's this guy, you know, he's got no legs and, you know, covered in tattoos or whatever, you know, he's kind of bald. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, I don't know, maybe for some I'm a little bit confronting, but, yeah, I'll just happily try to engage people. I mean, just if it is, I don't mean it to be like an educational part or anything. I just, you know, I just want to, you know, make people feel, you know, comfortable if they are feeling uncomfortable. But um, yeah, I just am who I am, and I think that's all I can be. Maybe we should invent a new mystical saying: "May your life be filled with wacky questions." <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I like it. I like it. David Hall, thank you so much for sharing your memories and your thoughts about your career in wheelchair tennis. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much to David Hall for joining us today. We can all be inspired by his drive, his passion, and his words of wisdom. Be sure to have a listen to our other inspiring conversations on the Tennis Worthy podcast, including Vijay Amritraj, Yvonne Lendl, Pam Shriver, and more. And don't hesitate to give us a review and subscribe. The Tennis Worthy Podcast was created by the International Tennis Hall of Fame in association with the Tennis Radio Network. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.